Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. The nominees for Best Performance by an Actress are Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker, Betty Davis in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Catherine Hepburn in Long Day's Journey into Night, Geraldine Page in Sweet Bird of Youth, and Leo Remick in Days of Wine and Roses. And the winner is Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker. Accepting for Anne Bancroft, Miss Joan Crawford. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most controversial years in Best Actress Oscar winning history. The 1963 year where Anne Bancroft won for The Miracle Worker and not Betty Davis. We will obviously be talking a lot about FX's and Ryan Murphy's TV show Feud, how incredibly inaccurate that show is. We will be talking about the actual feud itself and how it tends to eclipse the actual performance by Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker. Uh, We'll also be talking about The Miracle Worker. Um, This is a very interesting year. So 1963, uh, Best Actor went to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird. Best Supporting Actor went to Ed Begley for Sweet Bird of Youth, which makes sense. That was the only good part of that movie. Best Supporting Actress went to Patty Duke for The Miracle Worker. She, at the time, became the youngest actress to ever win an Oscar. This is in, obviously, that has since been, I think the next time it was uh, uh, Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon, but still, that was her... Record, and then uh, Best Director went to David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia, and Best Picture went to Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, today, I am joined uh, by a, a co-worker, a friend, a um, drag performer. Uh, they, uh, she refers to herself, and she is Toronto's drag queen of stand-up. You can see her perform all over the city, um, at Comedy Bar, Comedy Bar Danforth, Comedy Bar West, all over the city. Just check her out. She's super funny. It's Visa Decline. Hey, Visa. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for coming and doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm excited, because this, uh, this is a very dramatic year. Of course. Um, It's one of the more important episodes that I kind of have been putting off for a very long time because there's only so many years that people really talk about with Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress, like the year Marissa Tomei won for My Cousin Vinny or when Judy Holiday won over Gloria Swanson or Betty Davis. You know, there's always these like big controversial years. So this one I've been saving. Yes. Um, and I were obviously uh, going to talk about it, but why did you want to do this year? I really wanted to do this year because of the drama. Yeah. The drama <laughs> uh, of Joan Crawford being the shady bitch that she is and the plotting of Betty's down, not downfall, but Betty's blockage to her third Oscar because she wanted to be the first one to get three and uh, Joan Crawford really campaigned against her hard and it uh, it definitely became a sideshow mm-hmm. in itself and it it did take away from the ceremony uh, I mean we can we'll talk later about the uh, the backstage that evening but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's just an interesting year and uh, also looking at the some of the performances it was very heavy on uh, 
women playing addicts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, who better to talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> than a some drunk. comedians. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's so funny because this year. Um, often gets eclipsed by the actual feud itself because Joan Crawford famously accepted the award on Anne Bancroft's behalf. And then people uh, obviously saw that as shade, which it 100% was to Betty Davis because then she gets to walk off stage with the Best Actress Oscar. The only thing about that, though, is Betty Davis, until the day she died, always said that Joan Crawford was campaigning against her uh, in New York and actively campaigning to make sure that she wouldn't win Mm -hmm. and that she was asking uh, Geraldine Page and... um, uh, and Bancroft, if she could accept the award on their behalf, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in actuality, there is no actual proof that Joan Crawford made enough of an impact on the voters to actually sway the vote. Because Betty Davis said, I only won or I only lost by like a few votes. Yeah. That's actually never been proven and it's all rumors. And what's so interesting is. Because I watched the TV show Feud a million times. I even have the book that it's based on. I've read it. It's all rumors. That's, that's, it's all Hedda Hopper being a little, yeah, getting little tidbits and like pushing things, pushing narratives, a lot of behind the scenes uh, gossip. And a lot of it too was people coming out after both had passed already. So it was almost as if they were like, oh, well this can't be disproven now. Like, they're dead. No one's going to know. Right. So I feel like it's added to the hype around what happened. Because technically, I don't know if you knew the, know this, but Anne Bancroft originally wanted Patty Duke to accept yes. on her behalf. Yeah. And there was a rule that um, uh, nominees couldn't accept for others. So that's how she allowed Joan Crawford. So if that rule wasn't in place, Joan Crawford would never have even accepted the award or been able to. Well, it's interesting because that's a huge mistake, by the way, in the TV show feud is that like Hedda Hopper was like a vulture, like circling Mm -hmm. the project. Um, In actuality, they had selected her as uh, Betty Davis as the best actress winner that year in her column. Oh, but in the show, uh, Judy Davis, who portrays Hedda Hopper, was like super against Betty Davis and like hated her. So when you watch the TV show, because I just love it, I've seen it like a million times. And it actually was kind of a big reason why I started this podcast. And like it just got me into old Hollywood and getting into Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and all these kinds of classic Hollywood movies. Because I find Betty Davis tends to be a good like entry point for like a lot of people to get into like older movies. But, um, doing this episode, watching documentaries, et cetera, et cetera, even reading the feud book that it's based on, that show is incredibly historically inaccurate, but it's very fun and entertaining. Oh, and that's that's a Ryan Murphy production for you. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so you have to take everything with that from that show with a, a, a grain of salt. Um, but I was very excited to do this year because um, they really focus on it on like, I think like episode three or four of feud about like you know all of these nominees and uh it's so interesting to actually watch them and see them um because it gives more context to the show and i gotta say um 
two of these performances were arguably one of the most painful movies I have ever had to watch for this show. And I am including the the most painful movie I ever did for this podcast. I mean, I've done a lot. <laughs> but the most painful movie I've ever done was The Emigrants with Liv Ullman. Oh, I've never seen that. It is. You don't need to. <laughs> it's <is> literally... <laughs> I'll a, take your word for it. It is a four-hour nap. And... Um, it is the performance is incredible. That does not mean that it is a very fun movie to watch. Mm-hmm. However, the the guest that I had, I think it was Dan Dillavo who was on that episode. He loved this movie, but it is anyway. Um, there are, there are two films this year that I found so such a chore, and I think that we're both probably going to agree on which one that that was or which two that that those were. Um, but let's jump into it. Let's just talk about this. Is I always say no in part- not in any particular order. This is usually just the order that I watch them in. So let's talk about Lee Remick in Days of Wine and Roses. So very Oof. quickly, <laughs> you know, this one I didn't mind too much. So um, very quickly, an alcoholic marries a young woman and systematically addicts her to booze so that they b- can both share this quote-unquote passion together. As a person who has been in many toxic relationships. I was going to say, when I was watching this, I was like, oh God, this reminds me of someone I dated who like got me into cocaine and like was like always wanting to drink. And I was like, I I wasn't triggered, but I was just like, ooh, those are early 20 days that I do not want to remember. Oh, it's so true. I mean, the thing is, it's like Daniel and I, like he's from Ireland, he drinks, I'm an alcoholic. So it's like alcohol, we got super drunk on the news on our very first date. Yes. So alcohol is honestly kind of a big part of our relationship. And, and it's so funny because like we we're very, we have a very healthy relationship with alcohol now, mm-hmm. but at the beginning it was extremely, uh, that could also problematic. be, well, I was going to say that could also be nerves. It's a new relationship. So it's like, well, I have to impress this person. So I need to like be a little bit more open and free. So what helps that? Alcohol. Alcohol. And drugs. Yes. But for me, it was more like I was a complete piece of shit and I needed to catch some therapy (laughs) because my life was just a complete mess. But we've since uh, caught some therapy and gotten our shit together. But um, this movie, though, with Jack Lemmon, um, so Lee Remick in the movie would be to today's standards supporting. Not that she isn't the lead in this movie, because I always talk about category fraud on this Mm -hmm. on this podcast. I would say this is a Jack Lemon vehicle. Very much so. It's not really about Lee Remick. She really is kind of just a prop for Jack Lemon's story to kind of have conflict. Well, actually, watching this movie, it made me think of that SNL uh, character that Kate McKinnon did, the old Hollywood, who was like, oh, I was a prop. I was woman, you know? And that's what this felt like yeah. at times. I was just like... Old Hollywood was like that, where it was like, totally. just grab a dame, a blonde woman, and put her on camera for five minutes at a time. I also didn't understand the way that they had met, because she was going so, to a work event, and then he thought that she was a call girl, and then yeah. she fucking hated him. And then she like got angry, because he kept relentlessly harassing her. Then she like rewards that behavior after making it so clear that she is not interested. She rewards that behavior of being like, oh, like, why didn't you ask me out? Mm-hmm. After she had made it so clear that she wanted her to leave him alone. First sign of a toxic relationship. You know? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, is this why men are like talk so like toxic masculinity from that generation? It's because like 
movies like this that yeah because these writers were probably toxic themselves all men (laughs) in the writers room who were just like this is what we want women to be like that's right we want we want them to like want us even when we're shitty (laughs) that's so true and so that I found a little uh, frustrating where it's like, no, 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 no. Means I don't drink yes. booze. What? <laughs> yeah, that got really, that that got a little frustrating for me. But then fine, it's the 1960s. It was a different time. I for can accept me, that. For me, like, I, I don't know. I hate, hate in films and TV when people um, have to act drunk. Yeah, and like, I have my smart serve. I know what a drunk person looks like. I know how a drunk person sounds, acts how they hold themselves and just seeing people act drunk, especially in old Hollywood. I'm like, Oh my God, it's like so tough to watch. Cause I'm like, here, no one's ever that bubbly. Most people are so miserable when they're drunk, you know, like no one's ever like, Oh, I'm going to fall, fall over and dance around and shit. And you're like, no, that's, yeah, it I don't was know. just silly. Yeah. I found a lot of, especially the way that acting was in older Hollywood films, is it was very much like I'm very aware that I'm watching a play. Yeah, on camera, which is fine. I mean, obviously, it's it's just. Well, I mean, one of these movies technically was. But. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but it's yeah, it is very very different. It's just listen, uh, Lee Remick in this. Uh, film, I found her um, character and story very compelling, maybe just because I am an alcoholic myself, so I found uh, that very interesting and relatable, but also um, I would say probably for the time this was very unflattering for a woman to be portrayed this way, so maybe it was considered a brave performance, you know? Um, Also, she was mostly a TV star, so this was like a big moment in her career to be nominated for this Oscar. It was actually the only Oscar that she was ever um, nominated for. Um, I also liked the way that she didn't drink like when they first met and how that slowly became a part of her life and how she became addicted to it and how it became more important to her than her child and her husband. Um, because I'm sure that that is something that is very, um, relatable to, I'm sure a lot of families. What's interesting though, is that in the movie they like have, she mentioned she has a chocolate addiction. Yes. And like, that's the sign of an addictive personality. And it's like, oh my God, stereotype of like, oh, women love chocolate. Oh, they're so addicted to chocolate. I'm like, oh, you can tell <laughs> it was just men writing this who have probably never met a woman before in their life. A hundred percent. Oh, bunch of incels. Yeah. Um, I also enjoyed the relationship with her father and the way that he was just really not impressed with Jack Lemon for so many reasons, and not just because of his job that he didn't understand, yeah. but also um, the way that that he resented him because of the fact that he essentially Jack Lemon's character like made her an alcoholic and um but the way that he kind of like has to accept that because they're married and back in the day like marriage was like binding like it wasn't like the everybody just gets divorced like it was in the yeah. 90s so it's just that's just how it was um I thought that they handled the subject matter for the time very well and I really enjoyed the conflict between um Lee Remick like and her father and I thought that like when he drags her to the shower and forces her to sober up um and I just I thought that those were some of the best scenes and some of her better performed scenes the most believably drunk was when she was around her father because like you're saying a lot of it was kind of silly the way that yeah, they very were much. acting. But also too, I'm like, you almost burned, you burned down your apartment pretty much. That's right. Like how yes. is there like no consequences for your action? Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you almost killed your child. And they were like, uh, and he's the, the one who ends up in the asylum. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny. Well, I always say that the 1960s was just one giant cup of whiskey and a smoke. Mm. So they prob- that probably happened all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that probably was not uncommon. Um, but yeah, 90% of the story is really about um, Jack Lemmon. I also, just as a side, I find Jack Lemmon so charming. I really, I think that he's one of the best comedic actors of all time. And, and the way that he does that, a lot of great like physical acting, like the scene where he like walks into the glass mm. and he like rips the flower out of the... Um, the lobby of the ho- the the building that they live in, and he's trying to make it seem like he was being considerate and bought flowers for her, but he's just a mess. Yeah, like just those the physicality of that acting, I thought was was very very impressive. And I also thought that Lee Remick and he had really wonderful chemistry together. Um, I also love that she won't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. She won't admit that she's an alcoholic. The scene at the motel where um, she begs him to stay because obviously misery loves company and and the struggle that he has with her, uh, whether or not he wants to continue being in a relationship with an alcoholic when he's trying to be sober. I just think that this movie touched on a lot of really um, important things, especially for the time, because this was probably one of the first movies that like really delved into um, alcoholism and addiction, addiction yeah. during this time in history. I actually thought at one point I was like, "Is this a like advertisement for AA? Like, are they <laughs> like, <laughs> are they uh, backing this? What like it was? They were really pushing like Alcoholics Anonymous in these meetings, hundred <laughs> percent." Uh, they really were. And maybe, maybe it was sponsored by, uh, no pun intended. Uh, (laughs) but I also was confused by, was the drink, was the drunk tank? Like, it was like, yeah, he was in a straight jacket for being in the street drunk. But she, like at one point he went full, like Nancy from the craft, like at the ending where she's like in a straight, and she's like, I'm flying. And like, just, you're like, what was that the drunk tank? Because uh, I was very confused by that. The, which, was this the, the, the last one? This was, yeah, I, because I, he was like strapped to a table yeah, at yeah, one yeah. point. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that was, I thought that was really weird. Um, I also, the one thing I did not like about this movie was um, the way that they present alcoholism as a lottery system. And it's like some people just have it and some people just don't. And it's like, I realized that this is before the time of therapy where they were like, therapy's for pussies, like man up. (laughs) But there's always a psychological reason for addiction and at the heart of every addiction is pain. Obviously, um, those conversations weren't happening during that time, Mm -hmm. but I do think that is really the only issue that I have with this movie is they just made it seem like, oh, like some people just can't handle their drink and there's no reason why. Well, she did say at one point that she doesn't like the world. She sees the world dirty without booze. Right. So it's, it's, it's clear that they touch upon it, but they also kind of treat it like it's a side. Yeah. Um, both Jack Lemon and Lee Remick sought help from Alcoholics Anonymous long after they had completed the film. So I guess this movie really touched on something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, preparing for their roles, both Jack Lemon and Lee Remick attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings numerous times. Lemon even spent several evenings at the Lincoln Heights jail where he observed inmates in the drunk tank and the, quote, dry out rooms. He later said it was frightening watching those poor souls tortured by um, delirium tremens. 
the DTs. As a result of what I saw, we changed several scenes. For instance, we used a dry out table where you are strapped down rather than having the guy just wake up in the cell. Oh shit, so that was... Oh, so that's part that, of it. That's what it was. That's terrifying. That's so medieval. Yeah. Uh, and also... The fact that Kristen adores chocolate might be a clue to an addictive tendency. Many alcoholics are addicted to sugar content of alcohol and also eat sweet things. Recovering addicts often swap out to a softer addiction such as caffeine or tobacco too. Hmm. That's true. Could try old Zempic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I stopped drinking, I got really, I kind of, what did I do? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I switched it for sweets. Definitely when I was like bone dry sober for like six months. Is alcohol the only addiction you've had or like, have you been like nicotine addicted before? Never. Because my grandmother was a cigarette Mm. and that very much traumatized me. It's not the right word. It's more like you, you see it for what it does to you and you're like, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. But Uh, the only other like addiction that I really had was cocaine. And for me, it got to a point at one point during the pandemic where I couldn't drink without, without getting cocaine. Mm. Like it it would just be like, every time I drank, I was like, where's the Coke? I will call people. Somebody come over. Let's do lines. Like let's, um, and I, I fucking loved Coke. That one I had to kind of phase out. Um, I did quit coke for quite a long time if you know if i'm being honest with you like i have done it a few times in the last year but it was more recreational than it was like i need this like um because everybody else we're just like oh like it's the cottage like whatever you know (laughs) um always the excuse but i'll uh, have a caesar and a rail it's fine (laughs) but for me no the biggest one was always was Mm. always alcohol see for, for me it was uh nicotine yeah. Like I smoked for many years and then the uh, pandemic at the start of the pandemic, that's when I I was injured. I couldn't go out to get cigarettes and I was just cold turkey mm. quit. But my fear was like after quitting smoking, would I be triggered again because of alcohol? Because the two were always hand in hand for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I've really reduced my alcohol intake and even when i am drinking i don't have that immediate need for a cigarette and it doesn't even cross my mind oh that's good so it's like it's interesting how you can be so dependent on something but then as time goes on you sometimes i forget i even smoked it's weird (laughs) well i just always say like it's always psychological yeah like there's always a reason why that like yeah the the expression is at the heart of every addiction is pain it's like the reason why i went into therapy was i was like why am i blacking out and the thing is is I didn't even drink like every day yeah it was like I just drank on a Friday yeah but it was just excessive it was it it was insane how much I would drink and then I'd be like where's the coke and then I would be a fucking cunt to anybody and everybody about literally nothing oh you need alcohol for that I just do that generally (laughs) (laughs) and 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 so for me it's like where is this coming from why and so for me I I knew that I had to talk to a therapist about it see where that issue was and um, really work on that. Mm-hmm. And then when I did eventually come back to alcohol, it was a completely different relationship with alcohol and a completely different, um, because if I'm being honest with you, I don't think that I would ever stop drinking 100% of the time. Yeah, It's nice to take breaks, mm-hmm. but I don't need alcohol. I just, I like it and yeah. I want to drink. 
Coke, I who needs Coke? I don't need. Coke. <laughs> I don't ever like. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, that's not something that I seek out. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, if I could do a drug every single day for the rest of my life, bitch, it would be cocaine. <laughs> it is wonderful. <laughs> I mean, great diet, lose your appetite, hundred percent. But it just kills all your happiness and it ruins your week. Yeah, and it really messes up your heart rate, too. <laughs> yeah, but you lose a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about Geraldine Page and Sweetbird of Youth. Speaking about addicts. Speaking about <laughs> addicts. So this... Now, this is a best supporting. This is 100% a best like, supporting. When I saw that this was best actress, I was like... I was watching the film, and I was like, she's barely in this compared yeah. to other people. Like, how is this the best actress? Is it just because of who she is? Right. You know, it was, uh, yeah. It didn't make it. And also she won the Golden Globe for best performance by an actress in a drama. I think it's because this was another thing, another play, another movie by Tennessee Williams. Mm-hmm. And um, she had um, just been previously nominated the year before for best actress for another Tennessee uh, Williams play where is it here we were literally just talking about it in the last episode and uh summer and smoke and i applaud her for her range because this is a completely opposite type of performance from the year that she had been previously nominated for geraldine page is amazing actress she has incredible range uh but i primarily stage actress yes and I don't really care for a lot of her movies, and I don't really care for a lot of her performances, but when she... and For me, it was Interiors was her best one. Like, when she nails it, like, she fucking nails it. She's an amazing actress, but um, I find that a lot of her movies are just... I'm very aware that I'm watching a play. Yeah. I applaud her from her range from her previous Tennessee Williams character to this one, but... Oh my God, this movie was such a chore. And it's Paul Newman. I love Paul Newman. And I think he is so sexy. And I'm like, yes, I have no problem watching him for two hours. Young Paul Newman, I was kind of like, I'm feeling things. I know. My salad dressing is dripping. Yeah, absolutely. But again, another drunk, passed out performance. Because she's passed out for like the first 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah. In bed and also in the back of like a convertible. Um, And like you said, it seems to be a theme um and i wrote 20 minutes in geraldine page has one line and an oxygen tank but we have a tedious scene in a mansion with a mayor or a boss or something that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever this movie was so painful geraldine page's character was probably like the more interesting character but i think limiting her to that one hotel room except for for like one scene where she's outside and falls over a table it is so boring. Yeah. It's so boring. And like they never like let's be let's be real. Paul Paul Newman's character was a hired escort in my opinion for her even though they like try to cover it up with like a oh she's taking him as a lover but it's like no he's trying to break into Hollywood and she's like she's allowing him to travel but he's clearly got this thing going on for this girl that he's left back home so it's like I think you're just a you're a whore for money. <laughs> uh, there was a sex worker uh, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, the male lead, who uh, his name is escaping me at the moment, but 
anytime they had those kinds of characters, especially with with men, because like women in any decade of film, really, they were either like a prostitute or a mother, yeah. or like a mother who becomes a prostitute. And in, with men, it was like they had to kind of dance around it. Yeah, they're like, oh, he's aspiring to be something. Right, exactly. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> he has ambition, guys. Yeah. And so... Um, Heavenly, Shirley Knight, also nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this movie, has way more lines, way more screen time than Geraldine Page. She should have been lead and then Geraldine Page supporting. Yes. She really would have won if she went supporting. You know what I mean? Um, I do applaud her range from last year to this year. Um, What I applaud with this movie, and I will say this for a few of them, they were short. And it made me realize how much I hate cinema at the moment because it's so stretched out and so long. Like I, I just saw the little mermaid and I was like, we could have shaved off 30 minutes. Ago, you know, like, we didn't need that Lin-Manuel extra song in there, you know, but um, yeah, I, I love that some of these films were shorter than others. And this was one of them where I was like, Good, because if this had an extra 30 minutes on it, I would have passed out. Really? Because this movie felt like four hours to me. <laughs> it really did. Also, uh, just because you brought it up, what did you think of Melissa McCarthy's performance in um, as Ursula? I haven't seen it, so. I will say, anyone who says Melissa McCarthy was the wrong choice should just shut up. Oh, Melissa really? McCarthy, I thought, was the perfect choice for Ursula. She really brings it... Um, Yes, the makeup test video that went viral was super bad. And as a drag queen, I can say it's bad makeup. And maybe a drag queen or even just a queer makeup artist should have been in charge of it. But in the film, you don't really notice the makeup because of the effects. So it doesn't really take me out of it. Okay. Um, but I, I think if Pat Carroll was alive, she, she herself would have been happy with the way Ursula was portrayed in oh, live Oh, that's action. wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad to hear just because I've, I've been hearing really mixed. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I thought I thought it was great. I thought all the casting choices were good. I'm glad uh, Harry Styles did not end up becoming Prince Eric. So I'm very happy with that because <laughs> don't need to watch. I think he's a terrible actor. He, he is. He very much is. And based on what they did with Eric, I don't think Harry Styles would have done as well. Um, and uh, what was the other thing I was going to say about Little Mermaid? Oh, um, there is. Did you are you a big fan of the original, like the animated? I guess so. I mean, I've okay. seen it a lot. So I'll, there's a little Easter egg in there where the actual voice from 1989 is in the Little Mermaid, and you, it's so small and it's kind of quick. But uh, if you know who Jody is, you'll you'll see it. So when you watch it, just try to keep an eye and be like, oh, where is this? Okay, scene. All right, yeah. Keep my eyes peeled. Keep my eyes peeled. Um, I was the only one in the theater who gasped. And there was like, <laughs> there was like probably eight other homosexuals with me. It was a Monday at Cineplex. <laughs> and then there was like just a bunch of like kids and girls. And I went, <gasps> and I was the only one who noticed. And I was like, no one else? You're like, really? Okay. <laughs> Fine. But it did elic- but it elicit the gay gasp. I love it. Yeah. Um, okay. So just getting back to Geraldine Page here. So she plays this fabulous diva movie star. And, you know, in, um, you know, the movie... Uh, oh, also, I didn't even say what this movie was about. Sorry to the listeners. Very quickly, a drifter and a faded movie film star, Geraldine Page's character, both traumatized by Hollywood, arrive in Guy's Town, where the old bitter memories uh, revive again. So basically, Geraldine Page is this 
I guess Hollywood has been, but it doesn't really make sense because she's in the theater debuting her film and the audience like laughs inexplicably at this one scene that her character is doing on screen. Yeah. And then Geraldine Page hysterically runs out of the theater and like trips and falls on paparazzi. And then I guess she perceives the moment to be a career ender. Yeah. And then ends up drunk in the back of Paul Newman's car and this is kind of the opening to the movie. And so I I just found her character confusing, even though I think Geraldine Page playing like a fabulous diva, quote unquote, has been movie star. I think she did a really good job. Mm-hmm. I just found this movie so fucking boring. Yeah. I just didn't care. Yeah. The pacing was off very much. So at times um, it just, yeah, I, I, I would say on on my scale, it's probably like four point five five for. I feel like five is generous. I feel like I would have gone lower. (laughs) Like I also realized very quickly because she kept being like chance, and then she would say chance, like she would have that pretentious sort of Moira Rose sort of accent in there, and I I enjoyed that. Uh, But then when she would say chance, I realized immediately that she is the voice of Madame Medusa from The Rescuers. Is she? Madame Medusa's Pawn Shop Boutique. Oh That's my god. Geraldine Page. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I was like, oh shit, because once she would say chance, I immediately recognized it. <laughs> um, but this movie was just painful to the bitter end. Mm-hmm. What do I say about her performance? I loved the way that she didn't give a shit whenever Paul Newman was threatening her with the talk about having, you know, illegal substances in the room. She was oh, with like blackmail. You know, yeah. it's like the way that she was in control no matter what. I enjoyed that dynamic with her and Paul Newman, but um I just didn't really understand how this was a best actress. If it was supporting, I'd be like totally. Yeah. But I just didn't understand how this was a lead performance. Um I just I don't know if there's enough here to warrant a nomination. These are just my personal feelings. I just, I hated this movie. And I I just thought that Geraldine Page, I feel like is being rewarded because she's so talented that they're like, oh yes, let's, we can't put her in the supporting category. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Um, Hmm. So Geraldine Page was nominated in 1960 uh, for a Tony award for best actress in a drama and recreated her role in this movie. So maybe they were, I don't know, maybe that had a snowball effect because she had already been nominated for Best Actress for the play. Yeah, so they were like, well, can't put her in a supporting category for the Oscars. Exactly. Um, Also, uh, Geraldine Page in a magazine interview shortly before her death said that the makeup artists and hairdressers spent hours on her face and hair to obtain the, quote, look of a beautiful, albeit aging movie star. Page thought that the glamorized version of of Alexandra wasn't right for the part since Alexandra Del Lago was an alcoholic and drug user, but Page admitted that she felt that it was the best she ever looked in her life. Um... Longtime MGM hairstylist Sidney Guaroff, I'm probably pronouncing that very wrong, sorry, appears in the movie Uncredited Doing Geraldine Page's Hair. He was extremely well-respected, serving as chief hairstylist at MGM from 1934 until the late 1970s. Although he did not receive an on-screen credit, he designed Julie Gar- Judy Garland's hairstyles for The Wizard of Oz and dyed Lucille Ball's hair red for Dewberry Was a Lady, the oh. color that she kept for the rest of her life. Interesting. Kind of interesting. Um, okay, so Geraldine Page, uh, a fine actor in another boring movie, 
in my opinion, that kind of seems to be her go-to in a lot of these older films, um, especially the one that she won her Oscar for, A Trip to Bountiful. Oh, my God. A Trip to Boring. <laughs> uh, but those are just my opinions. But um, I just find that she has such range. It's it's nice seeing her do... She clearly is a fantastic actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just hated this fucking movie. Yeah. And it just kind of didn't make me care about the character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Not really, to be honest. <laughs> I think you pretty much summed up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Let's talk about the next painful movie, Extremely Long Day's Journey. Oh, I'm sorry. Long Day's Journey in Tonight. Oh, my God. This okay, movie. Okay, so this one, I'm going to be honest, my first watch, I fell asleep. Yeah. I like, I, it's two hours and 50 minutes. Yeah, two hours and like, for two hours and five zero. Not, yeah. Yeah. Just, like almost three hours. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, because it's, it was, they, it was a play and they didn't shave anything from the play. It's literally just a filmed version of the entire play. Yeah. And I love Kate, but, oh, Yo, this was painful. Uh, very quickly, at the end of a long and hot summer day, members of one family gather in a large house. Everyone has something painful and offensive to say, and their silence is even worse. Basically, the way that this family dysfunction, there's a way to do it and make it interesting, like August Osage I was County. just going to say, yeah. <laughs> this movie, it was like they would say something kind of like unhinged. Uh, and then they would say something loving, followed by something really hurtful, immediately followed up by something loving, mm-hmm. then something unhinged, then something hurtful, then something loving, then something... Un- it was just this incredibly repetitive, um, for the characters, the dialogue, it was just incredibly repetitive. It was just up and down, up and down, up and down. There was no specific moment where you're like, okay, so this is the big change in the plot yeah and then we're going in this direction it was just three hours of the same type of rhythm of conversation and then fade to black credits and that was the end yeah i grew up in italian family so for me i think i was just like i've seen this before you know (laughs) like (laughs) this, this is a wedding where it's like compliment insult insult angry statement fight compliment you know <laughs> oh oh dysfunctional yeah. families this movie walked so august could run <laughs> that's true yeah but um okay so this movie takes place august uh 1912 uh according all in to one Kath- day all in all in one day <laughs> uh katherine hepper i will say this though as much as i hated this fucking movie um because it was literally an extremely long and tedious journey mm-hmm. stay in tonight is what the movie should be called. 
Uh, I will say that Mary, Katherine Hepburn's character, this is probably one of the best performances that I've ever seen from Katherine Hepburn. And it's definitely an Oscar-type role. Very much. Where something like Summertime or African Queen or this one might elicit the gay gas, Philadelphia Story or... Um, I wouldn't say guess who's coming to dinner, but like I would borderline say guess who's coming to dinner. I just don't ever really see them being Oscar performances. And mm-hmm. I'm just very aware that I'm watching Katherine Hepburn. Yeah. This is one of the few times that I've seen her and her character and the way that she handles these scenes almost in one consecutive take, mm-hmm. the range of emotions. And also I, I really see the character. I don't see Katherine Hepburn. I had that same effect where I was like, I I went along with the journey of the character. I've seen this morphine addicted woman who's struggling with like an alcoholic husband and just, I want to say there's hints of being bipolar mm. possibly with this character. Um, just with the, just with the, the range of emotions and how quickly things turn. Um, yeah. I Great performance. Just so long. So boring. So, so long. So boring. Also, the fat shaming at one point about that one uh, call girl, too. It's like, what? What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of very problematic... The way that they would talk about people... It was so casual back in the day. Yeah. Um, Just casual hate. But, you know, the big points are obviously she's in denial of her son's consumption which i thought consumption was alcoholism but it was tuberculosis yeah because one of them is very sick yes yeah. that was the played by dean stockwell who almost looked like a young uh james dean very yes. very attractive yeah the younger son i kept being like oh hello What's i love your story oh sure oh sure <laughs> i love i just i loved um the the just because you have wonderful acting and you nominate somebody for acting doesn't mean that it's going to be a very interesting or compelling story or movie. Yeah. And this is one of those examples where, like, I actually understand the nomination here. I, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. I just fucking hate this movie. Yeah. It was so painful. And um, everybody is acting wonderfully. And Jason Roberts, who plays Jamie, the the scenes where she would Mary would get high and then he would call her out and the way that they would argue and um, the scenes with his father. Um, the problem is just that um, the worst part of the movie was Kathleen, the house yes. woman. She had like a Moira Rose Irish accent where she was like, <laughs> top of the morning to you. Like it was like, <laughs> what is that? Who are, where are you from? And she got like British at one point and then she, I don't know. She was probably the worst part of the movie. Yeah. Um, also, you're going to dilute an alcoholic's booze. They're going to notice. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. know, like That's she starts true. doing that. I'm like, um. <laughs> That's very true. You would notice because they water down the alcohol. Yeah, if I learned anything in high school, it's that you can try to dilute the alcohol to make it seem like you didn't take any. Your parents will always know. (laughs) We used to, to, what we used to do, oh God, is we always would take like a little bit of each bottle and then mix it into one water bottle and make this disgusting cocktail of whatever the fuck was in your parents' liquor cabinet. It was vile. We used to go to the forest and just like all take swigs of it. Just awful. Wake up in a cornfield. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, where are you from, by the way? I grew up in Hamilton, the ashtray of Ontario. <laughs> That's why when you were like, oh, my grandmother was a cigarette 
And I was like, oh, I grew up in an ashtray. <laughs> I literally, my, I had one uncle, my great uncle, who actually um, had a hole in his throat. So he looked like one of those cigarette ads. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I still started smoking. <laughs> Despite being a child and having food get spat on me from his throat, I still yeah. would start smoking thinking, that's okay. There's no consequences for this action. <laughs> right. Well, they definitely, it can go either way, right? It's yeah. either you become a smoker or you never touch the stuff. And clearly you became a smoker. I did. <laughs> um, I did, I'll be honest. I don't have much more to say about this <laughs> film. Uh, it was, this was probably one of the more painful ones to get through. I think that this was the most painful yeah. one because it was three hours long. Um, I think it was kind of funny whenever Mary comes down in like this nightgown with a gigantic wedding train dress at the end and starts playing piano in like the creepiest way you can imagine. Um, I thought that was kind of a funny scene. I know that it's supposed to be serious, but um, the, cause I do kind of agree with you. I don't really have much else to say. The, the things that I will say positively for this performance is um, uh, this is a side of Catherine Hepburn that I don't think I've ever seen before. I think this is one of her best performances I've ever seen in one of the most boring movies. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, um, because she hadn't won her second Oscar at that point, I think if this was a good movie, she actually could have had a chance at winning it. Mm-hmm. It just the movie was so blah. Uh, but she did win the Cannes Best Actress Award, and all three boys won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival. And um, I also really just liked uh, seeing her range of emotions, the way that uh, she had conflicts with all of her sons in different ways, the way that she struggled with addiction. Like you said, this seems to be a theme this year. (laughs) Um, And uh, also just, I give props to an actor for doing these extremely long, wordy, heavy monologues because that's a lot of this movie seemed like it was almost done in like one take. You know what I mean? Very much so. Very much so. So I just thought that was just te- from a technical perspective, extremely impressive. And she's clearly a very talented actor um, and a really, really great performance. It's just, yeah, the movie spoils it. Yes. Agreed. According to Catherine Hepburn's biographer, Charles Hingham, uh, she became so upset with Dean Stockwell when he showed up the first day of shooting with a bottle of vodka, she almost struck him. And when she discovered that he found the set very cold, she bought him a coat, which he later found in his dressing room. I don't know why that is the fact that I selected for this movie, (laughs) but I thought that was more interesting than what was going on at the screen at the time. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Why, the, why the vodka bottle? Why is she upset about that? I guess it had to be a sober set. Oh, um, interesting. I don't know. But she was also like that to Humphrey Bogart on this uh, set of African Queen because I guess he was drinking too much. So mm. maybe she disliked when other actors drank on stage or on She set. wants professionalism. Absolutely. <laughs> don't we all? Um, Betty Davis. We are going to talk about the Betty Davis whatever happened to baby Jane. And we are going to talk about whether or not we think that she was robbed. I think, I mean, really this episode, anybody listening, you're just kind of waiting to get to this moment of the episode. (laughs) Um, So very quickly, whatever happened to baby Jane, a formal, a former child star, baby Jane Hudson torments her paraplegic sister, um, Joan Crawford Blanche uh, in their decaying Hollywood mansion. Was it decaying? It looked like, Beautiful. I mean, it wasn't Grey Gardens, but it was very (laughs) much, uh, it it looked dirty. It looked, well, you can never tell with these black and white movies. That's true. Uh, true. um, According to Betty Davis's book, This and That, that was her second book, um, this film was originally going to be shot in color. Davis opposed this, saying that it would just make a sad story look pretty. No, I guess you could kind of see that. 
Um, in her book, This and That, Betty Davis said that she had a lot of control over how her makeup should be done for the film. She imagined that older Jane as somebody who would be someone that would never wash her face and just put on another layer of makeup. When her daughter, Barbara Merrill, BD, uh, first saw her full Jane makeup, she said, oh, mother, this time you've gone too far, which... Yeah, because it is, like, ghoulishly white makeup. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, like, you see photos now in color of it, and uh, I do think black and white was the best choice to It was 100%. film. Because she does, she does look insane. Yeah. Um, Davis's character of deranged former child star Baby Hudson uh, is wildly believed to be based on, at least partially, on former silent movie ingenue Mary Miles Minter. Minter's career ended abruptly in 1922 when a press coverage suggested that she was a prime suspect in the still unsolved murder, the still unsolved murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Although she was never formally charged, Minter survived for decades afterwards as a progressively delusional recluse. Hmm. And also, final fact before we get into Betty Davis, the wig Betty Davis wears throughout the film had, unbeknownst to both leads, been worn by Joan Crawford in an earlier MGN movie because uh, it had been regroomed. Crawford didn't recognize it. Oh. Actually, I, knew, I think I knew that fact. They say it in the show, but apparently, yeah. like, Betty Davis didn't know. Mm. Um, so, again, also an inaccuracy for that. For the show. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so very quickly then, uh, the way that I just feel about this movie, I've seen this movie a million times. Um, this is, of course, the big robbery was that Betty Davis didn't win. This should have been her third Oscar because especially after she lost for um, Margot Channing in All About Eve. Yes. Um, what I love so much about Jane is she has zero fucks to give and it's everything. Mm-hmm. She even has like a physicality where she's just like dragging her feet all the time, her makeup is kind of a mess. Um, and she just seems like she's given up on herself and that she really hates her sister. Yeah, I mean, you know it's Betty Davis, you know it's this grand actress, but you just see the character come out. And yes. you, you get lost in the character because just of her as an actress and what she's able to accomplish. I mean, she had a say in the makeup and hair, so she could get it in very method with it. Um, whereas like Crawford, you can tell she was still trying to be pretty on camera, but Betty was just like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be as ugly as possible. <laughs> and that's why it started this exploitation uh, genre of film. Yeah. And often became like the last movie that these former movie stars would ever do. Yes. They would come in and then they would, be basically degraded by these plots and then that would be their exit of Hollywood forever. Yeah. Um, so thanks Betty Davis for getting that started. Um, (laughs) Hey, you're over 40. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Um, what I love so much about, uh, this performance is that of all of these nominated performances, this is probably the most interesting character. And also I get lost in her character. I believe that she's a walking, talking, breathing person where I did feel with all of the other performances, every single one of them, I'm very aware that I'm watching something that's based on a play Mm -hmm. or it could be a play where Betty Davis's Jane to me actually feels like a real psychotic person. I'm almost getting like Jack Nicholson in 
like Joker vibes, the way that she plays yes. the villain. Yes. And I totally believe it. I totally buy it. Um, I love whenever she becomes like a little girl and she starts like talking to herself and she starts having these really psychotic kind of moments. I think in terms of the journey of the character, other than Lee Remick in uh, Days of Wine and Roses, you don't see this like big journey for the characters exactly. It's kind of just like, this is who they are and this is where it is. I mean, especially for Anne Bancroft, the miracle worker, it's really more the journey of Helen Keller. It's not really the journey necessarily of Anne Bancroft's um, Annie Sullivan, but Betty Davis in this movie, it's like, you see her, I would say, I wouldn't say slow descent into madness because she kind of opens crazy and then just kind of gets like crazy. -er. Mm -hmm. Um, but the way that she does it is so fun and so entertaining, but also you do have sympathy for Joan Crawford. And also Joan Crawford gives a really wonderfully um, understated performance because she has to balance out the ridiculousness of Jane. Yes. And so without, you know, uh, Joan Crawford kind of taking a little bit of the backseat, uh, if you don't wow. have that, you From know, seat, yeah, <laughs> ableism, <laughs> you know, you know, but she is, uh, she needs to be understated to allow Jane to be kind of, uh, this mad woman. And, um, what I, what I love about it is watching, um, Catherine Hepburn's performance, watching Anne Bancroft's performance. I could tell this was Oscar bait. Mm-hmm. They knew that they were going to try to get that baby Jane they were given so little money. There was so little hope around it because it was like, these are two washed up actresses. This isn't going to be anything. So you don't see Betty Davis being like, I'm trying to get an Oscar. You just see Betty Davis trying to be like, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. This was very much to former Hollywood Titans who were reduced to nothing, who were trying to claw their way back to be like, we're still here. We can still sell at the box office. We're not box office poison like Joan Crawford had been described as, you know? So I I think that's what lends itself to this performance as well is Betty being like, I'm still relevant. I'm still here. And that's Jane's kind of purpose. She's trying to reinvent her career and be like, I'm form, I'm baby Jane, you know? And it's like, well, no, you're like 50 years old and crazy. Yeah. (laughs) You're not going to, reinvent your career exactly but this film actually did give them a boost that both desperately needed there was a good there were a lot of parallels in the movie that people could easily latch on to Joan Crawford whenever she was looking for a project for the two of them she very strategically waited as long as she did because she was very Joan Crawford was very good at knowing what the public wanted from their stars and she knew how to deliver it to them that's how she survived as long as she did and this project she knew that it was for her and Davis and what's interesting is like this whole thing with their feud, I'm sure they probably didn't really like each other very much, but the whole way, the way that everybody talked about the feud, I really think it was blown out of proportion by the media and yeah, the they, gossip columnist. Apparently it started with a, a man. Yes. Um, one of her husband, Joan Crawford's husbands in the mid thirties, she was on like some movie, Betty Davis was on some movie with her husband and then she tried to, Take yeah. him away, and yes, yeah, something like that. I, I, I'm not. I'm not. She did take him away. Well, I'm. There was someone that Betty was interested in, um, and she thought things were going to go somewhere, and then Joan Crawford went after him and ended up 
starting a relationship with them. And Betty felt it was very taken, like that that was her property, but there was never any documentation that they even went on dates, let alone. Um, there was no documentation about uh, like any sort of relationship even happening. Mm-hmm. So it almost feels like it was a one-sided attraction that uh, Betty was bitter about and took it out on Joan. I mean, that is one rumor. Yes. That is one <laughs> thing that could be true. Um, I and think- that's what their feud pretty much is. It seems like it's just a bunch of rumors and she said, she said... Well, that's the thing. And a lot of it, too, it's it's um, when you talk about uh, these two women being complete opposites, it's like Betty Davis made her own star by um, going against the grain in her career. And that was what made her famous. And then Joan Crawford was like by the book and like assimilated. Mm -hmm. So it's like and then they became huge. So it's like they're two completely opposite type of stars. And I think that's also a big thing that would lead to a narrative of like why they quote unquote hate each other. Yeah. They probably didn't like each other, but this feud, historically speaking, is actually, uh, it's all rumors. It's Mm -hmm. all, yeah, like you said, she said, she said. So, um, was there, I, I do know that Betty Davis hated, um, Faye Dunaway. She's gone on the record many times to say that. That would be like a real feud. But Betty Davis was always very respectful the way that she spoke of Joan Crawford in a way by saying, like, she was a professional. Like, she yeah. was always on time. She knew her lines and stuff like that. So, yeah, the 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 Faye Dunaway, that's from a movie later in Betty's career where Faye Dunaway held up production. Yeah. And I'm like, what a coincidence that Faye Dunaway would then go on to portray Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, wow, okay. Parallels. But, I mean, Joan Crawford did say if anyone was to play her in a movie, she would want Faye Dunaway. That's right. If Joan Crawford saw Mommy Dearest, she might not still think that. But <laughs> Yeah. That's one of my favorite movies of all time for the wrong reason. Yes. <laughs> um, Victor Bono's character, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, his last name was Flag. What do you think I heard at first? <laughs> they were like, look at the flag, Mr. Flag, all the flag. I'm like, the what? Well, he was gay. Yeah, he was gay. Yeah. But that's why I was like, what did you call him? <laughs> he also, like, his next big credit was King Tut on Batman. Batman yeah. The 60s series. Yeah. <laughs> so random. Um, the way that Jane is uh, drunk after she knocks out Elvira, she, like, hits her with a hammer and, I guess, kills her. And then afterward... She's like downstairs drinking whiskey, toasting to her memories, and she's talking to herself. What I love so much about Jane's mental state of the movie and the way that Betty Davis portrays her is it's a very layered lunatic. Yes. Because there's like the young Jane that comes out, and then there's the crazy Jane. But then she kind of has these like sort of lucid moments where she's just pissed off and having none of it. But she still um, hates her sister. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's very resentful. Like you can, you, and you can feel the anger too. Like you fuck, you know, she hates her. <laughs> and it's just that I think is a credit to, uh, the performance because I mean, listen, like we're not from that time. Like we didn't, we didn't know. We're not putting you know, that's sort of like Angelina Jolie and, um, 
Jennifer Aniston like hating each other. It's like we grew up with that sort of media putting those two women in. So it's like if there was a movie like Jane like that, it's like we would add our own biases into the characters. Mm-hmm. That we're like, oh, I could see it. I could feel it. But when you watch it, it's like, I don't know what their history was from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. I didn't grow up with that. And I can watch this movie without having seen any of that and still feel the anger and yeah. the hatred. And I think that that's a credit to the performance. Yes. You know? Very much so. Um, if Crawford went supporting, she probably would have been nominated for uh, an Oscar because she was very upset about the fact that she wasn't, which is why she wanted to accept Anne Bancroft's. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that... Because, um, I mean, it was a film led by both of them so it's interesting that they wouldn't try to push both into best actress um or at least push one to supporting i mean betty does stand out in the film compared to like the the baby jane character does stand out compared to the blanche the blanche character so crawford maybe would have been supporting but i think ego wise she would never have wanted well, they shared top billing, yeah. yeah. And back in the day, if you were top billing, you just got lead actress. Yeah. Um, it's 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 really changed in in recent years, Viola Davis. But uh, you know, I, this it's so funny though. I do love the way that Joan Crawford is so petty that she would actively uh, she did actively campaign against her. That that is true. I mean, to what effect? Like, I don't know, but. It is kind of hilarious that she actively campaigned against her. Yeah. And, and like Betty said, we both had a stake in this film. So yeah. why wouldn't she want Oscar next to it? Because then that would have just boost the sales, the profits that yeah. they would get from it. And then she's just that petty, this Joan Crawford. <laughs> she, I mean, well, at the time, she was probably like, oh, I have Pepsi money. I'm okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, she was drowning in debt, but yes. Um, but just in terms of a Betty Davis performance, I would go as far to say that this is probably my favorite of all of the Betty Davis performances that have been nominated for Oscars. So I just think that this is um, one of my favorite movies from this time, and it's my favorite Betty Davis performance. Um, you seem hesitant about that. No, I just like... <laughs> yeah, well... Because everyone always thinks all about E for Betty Davis, but it's this performance is just so different that I think that's why it's, I think that's why it's gotten the cult following it has as well. And why, uh, so many people have, uh, kept it going because for the time it was just so different. You, you didn't expect to see women on screen also allowing themselves to look like that. Yeah. You know? So, uh, it definitely changed maybe, exploitation was not the best term to use, but uh, it definitely uh, it definitely showed that women of a certain age could still draw at the box office, despite what Hollywood was trying to do, yeah. which was, oh, you're not a young ingenue anymore? Well, you you're get gone. to be a maid, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, that was a big part of the narrative of the film, too, it was like, I think audiences could literally picture Betty Davis and Joan Crawford living in this house. They're like, oh, that's probably what they're up to. Well, I mean, they actually used old clips from their movies from when they were younger in... I love that, ...in the actual film. Yeah, I love that. Um, Okay, so let's talk about... Or do you have anything else that you want to add 
Okay, so let's talk about Anne Bancroft and the Miracle Workers. Now so, talk about a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, this movie would not get made today, let me tell you. <laughs> or at least it wouldn't be portrayed by able-bodied people, that's yeah. for sure. That's for sure. So uh, the Miracle Worker is the story of um, Annie Sullivan's struggle to teach the blind and deaf Helen Keller how to communicate. And Helen Keller was played by Patty Duke, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And like I said, um, uh she became the youngest actress to ever win an Oscar at the time. And then this was later eclipsed by um, uh, Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon. And yeah, because Judy Garland got an Oscar, but it was like an honorary Oscar. It wasn't an actual category. For yes, Wizard of Oz. A, she got a juvenile yeah. Oscar. That's right. Um, Mark Twain was the first person to refer to Annie Sullivan as the quote miracle worker. Twain was a friend of Helen Keller. Um, just for the record, Annie Sullivan did not speak with an Irish accent. She was not Irish. So Anne Bancroft adding that, she did it in the play, um, and she also did it in the film. Author William Gibson and director Arthur Penn decided to give her uh, a accent while rehearsing the play to help Bancroft differentiate her character from that of Jatel Mosca, who she had just who whom she had just played in Gibson's Two for the Seesaw, which Penn also directed. I think that is a very very strange creative choice. Yeah. Um, Bancroft's performance as Annie was so affecting that m- most subsequent productions of The Miracle Worker have her using a brogue. Oh, that's just so. Let's just start a rumor. She had an accent. No, she didn't. <laughs> um. Although Patty Duke had been playing Helen Keller in the role for more than a year, she almost didn't get the part in the film adaptation. The studio felt that um, being a teenager, she looked too old to play a seven, a seven-year-old. Well, actually, she kind of did look pretty young. Um, however, they decided to use Duke after deciding to use Anne Bancroft, who played Duke's original Annie Sullivan in the play. So... Um, this movie was certainly more enjoyable than the majority of these films. Yes. Uh, this performance by Anne Bancroft was extremely physical. She had to wear like almost like goalie padding like all over her body to protect herself. Um, I will say some of the physicality made me laugh out loud because it just looked so absurd. And like you think like at the time where the people like, oh my God, this is insane. But now it's like, like, you could have added some music behind that and been like, no, 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 Like, it's just so dumb. And, like, at one point is this child abuse on camera, you know? Like, you're having a mute, blind, deaf girl carry your suitcases into the house? Like, she can't even find the door. And you're making her carry things? Like, oh, my God. <laughs> um well, like I said, I don't think they could make this movie no. today, especially the way that they did this movie. Um, and the sniffing of the fingers. I don't know if it's just because I'm gay, but I was like, I would never <laughs> that is just let rude. anyone sniff my fingers. Sure. Um, I would say that this movie is really more about Patty Duke. Um, Annie Sullivan's physicality is really where this amazing performance by her comes in because at this point... And Bancroft was really own, known in film as playing these like kind of ridiculous bit parts in like monster movies. Like mm-hmm. she was in this like gorilla movie. 
okay, this like big giant gorilla, not not King Kong, but yeah, it was yeah. like King Kong esque. Uh, so she didn't really make it in Hollywood in the 1950s. So she went back to um, Broadway and was doing The Miracle Worker and other performances. And then this being translated into film completely changed her career because they were like, oh, wow, she is like this prestige actress and she is like amazing. And um, I think a big part of the reason why she won this Oscar is almost like the triumph over the way that she was miscast in the 1950s, but also delivering an amazing stage performance, winning a Tony for it, and then uh, translating that to the screen. It's like you've overcome so much and proven so many people wrong. Yeah, the underdog story. That exactly. Um, and I will say that 50% of the performance was mostly just trying to catch Helen Keller mm-hmm. and to get her to stop flailing and then signing. Um, the amount of patience that that would require of the actor, I also think is very impressive because I was becoming so annoyed. It would go on. Remember that scene in the kitchen that went on for 10 minutes <laughs> where she was thrashing and yeah. smashing and flailing and, and then spitting. And then that went on for 10 minutes after one or two. I get it. Yeah. I'm good. I don't need to watch this for 10 minutes. Well, I actually watching this film. I realize now a family guy reference. Okay. Um, they they did a Miracle Worker reference, but it was with uh, the binary code. So like the water scene at the end with the well. Okay. So Family Guy did this thing where it was like one zero zero one one, and then like, and then I saw that scene. And I was like, oh, so that's the Family Guy reference. Because when I saw that first episode, I was like, I don't understand this. <laughs> what is this? And now I'm like, oh, Helen Keller was always a very easy punchline back in the day. I believe like, yeah, like there were some older drag queens who I know who still make those Helen Keller references. And I'm like, update your references. Hello. Oh, yeah. Like what? Also, why are we making fun of a deaf and blind well, like, It's so fucked up because that's how I knew who she was. Yeah. Because people would always make a joke about it. Yeah. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like that is But then is you so find out she's up. like, she's a scholar and she's an author and like she yeah. did so much and overcame her disability. But it's like people would use it as a punchline so easily. Like that was like her legacy almost. Yeah. It's so, because I remember there was that song where it was like, um, hush girl, shut your lips, do the Helen Keller yes. and talk with your hips. And that was, that wasn't even that long ago. No. That was like, I think less than 10 years ago. And now watching this movie, I'm like, oh, I need to see what they mean by the hips and the thrashing. Yeah. Cause there are several, <laughs> that was, I mean, for Patty Duke to be thrashing. I can see why she won this Oscar, but I'll tell you, like this was not a performance that would be accepted today. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Um, you'd be getting Razzies, not Oscars. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I did, uh, I don't know, the only criticism I have of Anne Bancroft in this role is I don't really bought that she was blind at all. I believe, the only time that I could tell was whenever she would like put that liquid in her eye or she would have to like read something really close. For the most part, I I guess it was that she could see shapes. Mm. And I guess they were trying to do that with some of the interesting sort of overlaying that they did with like shadows and I think that was supposed to be like, this is how she views the world. Mm -hmm. I don't know how effective that was because to me, um, at one point, that guy, the brother who was like so resistant. Yeah, just popping into windows. Constantly (laughs) being like, I'm against everything you're doing. You're like, fuck off. Yeah. Um, Says like, you are so beautiful except for your eyes. I'm like, really? Because she looks like, 
I didn't understand. I didn't quite get that she was blind. Yeah, I mean, until they like referenced it, I totally forgot that she had surgery or like that she had any disability. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, but it's the physicality of the performance that mm-hmm. makes the performance so impressive. Because for the love of God, I would have been like, fuck this, yeah. <laughs> and fucking walked out of that room. Yeah. Because it just was, it was insane. And I guess that that's why it was so long, of this, like, 10-minute scene in the kitchen, is because I guess it's trying to show to audiences how much patience it takes. It takes, and why it was, why she's the miracle worker. <laughs> okay. Um, I know that she learned sign language for the role. Um, I know that she actually taped her eyes shut so that she could get used to being blind. Oh, really? Yeah, so she did the damn thing. Yeah. Like, she did the role. She was the character. Um, I just... And also, of all of these movies, I actually watched this one. I didn't check out 15 times. I didn't have to keep pausing it. It was also one of the shorter ones, which I loved. I, lo- <laughs> I, love, a, I love a crisp hour and 30. Yeah. Or an hour. I think this was hour and 40. Yeah. But I love a crisp. All movies should be like that, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. But Anne Bancroft, I can certainly understand the nomination. Um, I... But I really, it, to me, it's the physicality of the role that was m- the most impressive thing. Um, yeah. Okay. Do you have, all right. Do you have anything else about Anne Bancroft's performance in The Miracle Worker before before we select who we think the Oscar should have gone to? Not really. I mean, I think we've pretty much covered. I just, the, mm, the, a lot of the, the Miracle Worker, I felt it just kind of became repetitive. It was trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, trial yeah, and error. Yeah, and the parents oh, getting so it. mad. Yeah. And then it was the end. Yeah. Yeah. That it, mm. So, so I don't know if there was a lot for Anne Bancroft to really demonstrate here other than restraints. <laughs> Cause you could tell how frustrated. And when, at one point, Helen Keller smacks her and she smacks out a tooth. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, you, yeah. It's just a Tuesday. Yeah, oh, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, I um I think I think Anne got this nomination strictly based on the physicality and um do do you think Patty Duke should have been best supporting actress? Or do you think Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. But I guess it's all the way that they choose to and she was so young too. Yeah. That they wouldn't put her in like a lead actress category. Although it was kind of crazy when Quavangene Wallace was nominated for Beast of the Southern Wild at like nine. She was best lead actress. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I hated Anne Bancroft's accent throughout this thing. <laughs> like, I was just like, it kind of, at times it took me out of it because I was like, what? It was a little distracting. Mm-hmm. She eventually like leaned into it fine, but the very, fir- very first scenes of the movie uh, it was very warbly. Yeah. And I'm literally, I've been dating an Irish person for five years. So you're like, I can tell when something's a my put ear, on. Like my <laughs> ear is trained to an Irish accent. So yeah, I can tell when you're not doing a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so this is, uh, I think we've reached the end here. So I think that the time has come for us to select who we think that the Oscar should have gone to. So Visa Decline, uh, you are my guest of honor. So please reveal who you think should have uh, gotten the Oscar first. I think the Oscar should have gone to 
Betty Davis. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and why? Why? Because out of all the performances, uh, hers felt more realized. I, I, I got lost in the character. Um, I mean, Anne Bancroft's was based on a person, um, and she did have some liberties, but uh, for the character development. But with Betty Davis, she just really delved in and created this monster in a way mm-hmm. um and it it just stood out because for me like i could feel like we said before i could feel the tension i could feel that this was a performance sh- not trying to bait for an oscar it was literally a performance trying to maintain relevancy mm-hmm. and uh because in their own lives they were trying to do that and this character was trying to regain what childhood fame they had. I could feel that. Um, and quite frankly, out of all the films, whatever happened to baby Jane has more of a cult following. So there was, there's something about that movie that people resonated with and that people continue to keep alive, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So I think that the Oscar should have gone to, Betty Davis for yeah. <laughs> whatever happened to baby Jane. I don't really think it's really much of a question here for us because we're good gays. Yeah. Uh, but also um, the reason why I love baby Jane so much is because I've seen this movie a thousand times. I've never got, I've never got sick of it. Um, it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Technically. I love a good villain. Uh, I love an underdog story, but also I love seeing an old woman be fabulously evil. Yeah. This is a layered performance. I think that she's a layered lunatic. I don't think that there were a lot of those in film uh, up until this point. And now it's like the Joker is the standard. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really think that Betty Davis is a big reason why uh, villains are very much like prestige performances. And I think that this is one of her best, if not her best. In my opinion, it's my favorite performance by her. Um, she made all the right choices. And you're right, I do think black and white film was the better way to go because if it was in color, it might seem a little strange. Yeah. Throw it off a little bit. Um, but I loved when she would have these emotional breakdowns and then it would immediately be followed by, oh, right, I hate my sister and I need to go kill her. <laughs> and I just loved when she would talk to herself as a child, the scenes that she had for, with Victor Buono. Um and her desperation for him to like her. I mean, the end too, when she's like, we could have been friends this entire time. Like, yeah. it's just like so psychotic. We didn't even talk about the beach scene <laughs> yeah. when like she's with the police and even the police are like, okay, this bitch is fucking yeah, crazy. Like, they around like, and they're like, everyone 10 feet back. Yeah. We don't know. She might be packing. And she's <laughs> just like twirling yeah. with ice cream melting in her hand. And you're just like, what is happening? But like you're saying, they didn't mean to make this amazingly critical hit. Mm-hmm. It kind of just... Became. happened and i think that um of all of the characters this is the most living breathing realistic person where i just got lost in her character where every other performance this year including Anne bancroft i'm very aware that i'm watching a play yes and so uh for all those reasons that's why i think that betty davis should have won the oscar and then she should have been the first person to have the three, three. yeah 
Okay, uh, Visa Decline, thank you so much for being a guest on this thank podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the Visa Decline, and you can check out my website, visadecline.com, and that's Visa with a Z, not Visa with an S, because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> I love it. Okay, thank you so much for being a guest, and we'll definitely have to have you back. Bye. Bye. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.